for me, what I've learned through therapy and just growth in general is that question of when we go there, you are is what we're going to find better than what you're leaving. I think find. men have a much harder time mm. just culturally and, and gender-wise. I think men have I've never been, you know, maybe. Hello there. I'm Yonka Kamara. Welcome to Kume Turning Point Diaries, where we share stories of critical moments in our personal and professional lives. I'm telling you this story, but I, I never, ever, ever, ever have to relive that story again. You're supposed to be able to you know, work through it, play through it. So I think that has been an this is the final episode of season two. I can't believe it's coming to an end. I hope you have enjoyed the conversations as much as I have. These are conversations we rarely have, truths we never dare to say out loud, and the fears we bury deep. But something miraculous happens when we allow the space to tell our stories. So for this week's episode, I wanted to create a compilation of the moments on the show that really resonated with you guys. Over time, I've received so many DMs and text messages, as well as reviews. Thank you so much to all of you who have left us a review. If you have not done so, please do so. But many of you guys have shared with us the moments that that inspired you, the moments that moved you, the moments that made you pause and think about your lived experience in a different way. And receiving that makes me so, so happy. I wanted to also share with you one of the DMs that a guest received. The guest was Anthea Tabor from season two, episode five. And the listener wrote, wow, Anthea, I just listened to your podcast episode with Yanka, and I need to say thank you for telling your story. I have never heard someone give an account so similar to my own, and I felt so seen and understood. So many details you gave were my own story, and hearing you say them gave me the gift of further healing and a reminder I should go back to therapy to continue healing. Messages like this just warms my heart. I'm a big believer that stories are communal currency of humanity. The more we share, the more we will see that we are not alone. So thank you to all of our guests who have courageously shared their story. Like I said, um, this episode is a compilation of what I'm calling moments of revelation, transformation, and affirmation. I have put them in that order. And I hope that you enjoy them. And I hope that, you know, this would be a great episode to share with a family, with a friend who um, you think should listen to Kume, but you don't know exactly which episode they should listen to. Uh, but this is a great way for them to hear the kinds of conversations we are having, because I believe that we're having conversations that you're not hearing anywhere else. I hope that you continue to follow us, continue to share the story. And I have a lot in the pipeline for this platform. I can't wait to share with you guys in the coming months. But please, please, please follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Turning Point Diaries. Please go check out our website and subscribe to our newsletter. I promise you we won't spam you, uh, but there are things that are coming and I want you to be the first ones to hear about it. So stay tuned for all of that. Again, thank you for listening. Thank you for being on this journey with us. So without further ado, here is season two's final episode.
I think I was just longing. I was searching. I was searching for my path. And by that, I mean, I came to school and I've always had these big ideas in my head, but something that was always clear. And even when I was a child is I wanted to do something that I felt was above me. I wanted to do a work that I felt was work that mattered. I remember even when I was young, which is crazy because I was just a child. But I remember thinking, I don't want my life. I don't want to just leave and die. And that's it. I wanted to feel like I have lived. I wanted to feel that I want my life every single day to feel that I'm alive, to know why I'm doing this thing that I'm doing. And I think for a long time, that drive, it, it served me well. And at the same time, it generated so much fear of missing out that I never stayed in one place because I always felt that I needed to move. And I was always afraid of missing out on things. And so I think that by identifying that fear that I decided, okay, actually, I don't even know what is it I'm supposed to do. So maybe what I'm really supposed to do is just be at peace with myself and, and, and enjoy every moment in life. Um, and that's when I found the peace necessary to actually live here in Senegal, which wasn't the case uh, for the last almost 10 years. I grew up in a in a single parent household. I was raised by my grandmother, uh, my dad's mom. My dad did 20 years in prison. He was in prison throughout my childhood up until my sophomore year of college. Um, I didn't grow up with my mother around. So I grew up in this environment, you know, in South Central Los Angeles, you know, with a single grandmother in an area, you know, my uncles were gangbangers and, you know, our house got shot up and stuff and, and there were setbacks. So I think those kinds of experiences prepare you for anything else that comes thereafter. Because to me, growing up, those were just normal experiences. You know, our house, our house was shot up any number of times. I've been in any number of shootings in the crosshairs of them. Uh, growing up, visiting my dad in prison on the weekends. Like these are all things that contributed to what I would describe as my own resilience, right? And then you get to college and you're like, okay, because we all know in America or in the world, college is one of these things that are supposed to, you know, be the equilibrium, like it's supposed to be that equalizer, that thing that makes us all, you know, it's going to put us all on the same footing in terms of education and finances and everything. But then I end up not graduating. So that's another setback. Now that's another piece of anxiety. So all of those things in those experiences prepared me for everything that happened thereafter for, in terms of setbacks. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, uh, you know, it's like working out or anything, right? You, if you know how to do that, you know, you, you, you'll be able to do the other thing. If I could do 50 push-ups, I can certainly do 15, you know, like, you know, these things, relatively speaking, they're a lot smaller in scale. Me losing my job is not as bad as, as, as having to pick up a phone and talk to my dad on the other end of a glass. It's not as bad as, as being in the crosshairs as a six-year-old in a shooting. You know what I mean? Things that I remember, those are things that are, uh, those things prepare me for, for life in the corporate world and these kind of setbacks. This here was a turning point in my life. This was that, that started that turn. Mm -hmm. As, you know, my, my son being born was a little turn. Now my father on his deathbed was a, an, another turn of the shoulder. Um, so I go in there, I ask everyone to leave out and I forgive my father. I, I, I forgive my father in that, just, in that moment. I just, you know, I told him straight up, um, you know, I forgive you for not being a father to me. Um, but I also thank you 
because you made me into the best father that I can be. I never want my son to ever feel the feelings that I had of not having a father, you know, going fishing, shooting hoops, uh, riding a bike, things like that. I always made sure I was there in those highlights uh, for my son. And that was because I didn't have those highlights. Mm -hmm. They were with my grandfather, uncles, um, friends, family, you know, whatever the case may have been. Um, but it wasn't him. Mm -hmm. I think men have a much harder time mm -hmm. just culturally and, and gender-wise. I think men have, I've never been, you know, maybe it's changing now to, mm -hmm. to, you're supposed to, I think, be stoic with pain. You're supposed to be able to, you know, work through it, play through it. So I think that has been an issue for me, um, that, that it was something that, you know, when I was especially diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which you know, is a very prim primarily diagnosed for women, mm. um, I felt, well, if this is something that mostly women are, then, you know, it's going to be strange as a man to talk about that I have it. But yeah. in some ways, there may be men who are just not getting diagnosed or not being open to talking about some of the symptoms that they have. Yeah. And when I first had these, you know, but this is many years ago, I asked my doctor, like, can you give me patients who have made it to the other side, who've mm. done well with it? And he was like, yes, yes, I'll do that. And I asked him two or three times and never no, followed I, through. I never followed through. And I don't know if it was because maybe there was just ne nobody that he could point to as an example. Mm. And now the physical therapist uh, that helped me points to me as an example uh, <laughs> to people where he says, look, you know, David yeah. made it through and went through this whole thing. And so, uh, yeah, so that I mean, I think that was even the start of me thinking, well, maybe I, I should be more of an advocate and more public about this because yeah. it, it is something that I think is really hard for people to talk about. Something I spend a lot of time thinking about is that the like the secrets that you have about yourself that you are afraid of other people finding out about because you're worried what they'll think of you or if they'll believe you. Those are the parts of yourself that I think are have the most potential to be beautiful about you. That's sort of what I'm learning. Like they're they're gonna guide what you do in your life and they're gonna allow you to, to be more loving and kind and also receive more love and kindness. And m my turning point was when I finally was able to tell someone, you know, every little thing that had happened and see how they were all connected. And so, yeah, I just wanted to share that. If anybody's struggling with um, thinking that there's something that they really can't tell someone, it, it's okay to tell someone and it will probably be a huge gift to yourself one day if you're able to get to that point where you can. It was very clear and it has been told to me in a very clear way and repeatedly that me as a black Muslim hijabi woman, I cannot have certain jobs. I cannot be certain things. I cannot do certain things. So I remember going to interviews and actually even here in Senegal, it's not just France, it's not just the US, even here in Senegal, a country where 96% of Muslim uh, people are Muslim. I remember interviewers, recruiters, HR people telling me, listen, you're just making your life very difficult. Is there any way you can just take it away? Or is there any way you can maybe wear a wig? Or is there any way maybe you can wear it differently? So I think being confronted with the reality of, okay, this is a part of my identity. And at the same time, being seeing that part of that identity, closing certain doors. And, and I remember one day I called my mom crying because I was in Paris and I was trying really, really hard to look for an apprenticeship. 
And that was never a defining factor. Every time that I didn't get a job, I didn't say it's not because it's because I'm, I'm I have a hijab. I felt okay. Maybe I didn't prepare enough myself for this interview because I never accepted to go there. <laughs> because once I go there, I, there's anything I can do about it. So I always refused for myself to choose it as a narrative to define me or to define the opportunities I can get or not get. There's this thing about racism or, you know, um, stereotyping that forces a person to hate themselves. So, and actually, like, want to be a token, you know? Like, yeah. you, you actually... Exactly. I almost, like, I felt like that was some form of a validation mm-hmm. or you're, you know, like, getting the gold star. Like, oh, this is our friend Michelle. She's Korean. And she, oh, she does that because she's, like, Korean. Yeah. And for a while, I I embrace it. Even with my own family. Mm-hmm. They would be, you know, my my white family would say things all the time, which I now realize were, ter- were, like, not the best things to be said. But I internalized what they were saying about me, and I really labeled myself as those things as part of my identity, mm-hmm. even if they weren't really true. Yeah. Um, which is unfortunate, because I think for years because I carried that I couldn't see myself beyond those labels if that makes sense which really I'm not saying everything happens in its own time and I'm grateful to just be where I am now Mm -hmm. but could I have maybe advanced a little bit faster in life had I been able to over overlook those things Mm -hmm. absolutely um and I see that again not just with me with other people who aren't adopted who are just of another race or just a different type of person who can't get past that label that's been put on them I was about maybe nine years old. Uh, We were so poor. So it was like uh, everyone in the building had on these like Chuck Taylors. (laughs) Like, you know, that was the hot new sneaker. There were different colors. Like everybody was like super fresh and fly with the, you know, the the Chuck Taylors. And we could not afford it. I was wearing Payless. My Payless were like, (sighs) you know, um... But I remember it was it was summertime, and like I said, we lived um, at the top of the building uh, on Elizabeth Ave, and it was really hot in the house. Like it was it was just so hot, you know. Um, the boys were getting super restless, you know. It wasn't like she could give the money to like um, you know go to Six Flags or some water park, but um, she just decided that like okay, we're all gonna go out because we lived across the street from Weekway Park. Um, she said, we're all going to go out and we're going to have a picnic. You know, I guess she you know, used the food stands or the family first car to like get some food. We made sandwiches. We had chips and snacks and everything like that. And she packed a bag for us. And um, we came down the stairs. And I just remember like that moment, just everyone had different like colors on and different color Chuck Taylors. And they were all looking at me and looking at us like... Like, you know, look at, like, look at us and look at what you, you saw, you know, and I, and we were standing right there at the entrance. And I just remember saying to myself, like, you know, I could either be jealous and get angry or I could just understand that, like, we can't afford it. And me getting jealous and angry isn't going to change the fact that we can't afford it. But we got this bag of snack, got Mama Joyce and my crazy cousins behind me, and we're going to go down to the park and I'm still going to have fun whether I got Chuck Taylors on or not. And so it taught me this lesson in jealousy, you know, and just being grateful for who who I am and what I have already. 
um, I say maybe four or five years after that moment, I started collecting Chuck Taylors. (laughs) (laughs) When I went to school, I was taken away from my mother and my father and my brothers and sisters and was thrown someplace else where, you know, everybody else, no brother there, no sister there, no, you know, my aunts and uncles were far away there in the town, but my father didn't send me there. So where I was was very painful for me, Mm. you know, and, uh, and, and I remember one time I was by myself in a room. Hmm. Just imagine a kid that's, you know, in like you know, maybe eight, nine years old. And I, all of a sudden there was a lamp, you know, like an Aladdin lamp. And all of a sudden, Aladdin lamp cast my shadow on the hmm. wall, you know. And, and I was the only one in the room. And it cast my shadow on the wall. And I looked at my shadow on the wall and I started dancing and moving, and my shadow keeps moving, and I will do so and so, and all of a sudden, I started laughing, and then, you know, it was, I was laughing, and I was dancing, I was all by myself, and then I ended up, I was sweating, I was tired, you know, but you know, it's like, wow, you know, I, I found a way to actually look at my myself, and mm. actually make fun of myself and laugh at myself and mm. stuff like was, you know, actually learning every time to find a different way to look at the situation. I saw my son cry mm. for the first time. I How saw, old was he? He was about eight, nine, mm. eight or nine. To me, eight or nine, I'm like, you're too old to be crying, dude. Like, you know, that doesn't change anything. Crying does not change anything. And it doesn't make you feel better because that's what I was, that's how I was raised. You know, the men didn't cry in my family. We weren't crybabies. We weren't, we wouldn't cry. The neighborhood, my mother raised me the same way. You know, if you're losing, go find a way to win. You know, if you fight, don't you leave that fight till you win. Um, it was just, it, it helped me in sports, but it affected me in relationships and different things like that. Um, I never really learned proper love. Um, my mother loved me for sure, but my mother raised me to be a man. Her perception of a man. My grandfather was in the military. He grew up in time where racism was huge. You know, mm-hmm. um, I was raised a lot different um, in regards to emotions. I, I wasn't wasn't huge on emotions. Mm-hmm. So at, at this point, he cries, and I don't even know what to do because one side of me is like. Dude, why the hell are you crying? Then the other half is, you don't have to raise him that way. At that moment, I was like, I need to raise my son different than how I was raised. I was raised to protect me from my environment and those around me. Um, He doesn't have to be raised that way. His mother was a loving person, so she naturally teaches him love. So our views on everything always conflicted. It was always an issue. Um, how I was raising him, how she was raised. And it really affected our relationships because we were raised totally different. Um, I was like, men shouldn't cry. She's like, men, is, oh, it's okay that men cry. It, so it always, it's mm-hmm. always, uh, we were always butting heads. Um, and that's, it, the relationship becomes toxic um, to the point where it's unhealthy for the child, creating yeah, more yeah. trauma. So I was creating trauma for my son because of the trauma that I endured. I needed to address those things myself. I made it okay where my son, like, you can cry. Men do cry. It's okay for you to cry. You said that to him? I said that to him. 
I told him that with the hopes of him not crying, <laughs> but I did voice it to him. You know, I, I did voice him. I voiced it to him. Hey, it's okay to cry. Don't never let anyone tell you any different. You know, crying doesn't make you any less of a man at all. And I want you to understand that. And I apologize to him because I, I did tell him, like, you shouldn't be crying. And that wasn't true. Me not crying just built up frustration, anger, where I was a fighter. Like, you know, mm -hmm. I, it was only so many words you could say or I was swinging. Um, that's not life. That's not life. That, that's a life that will lead to imprisonment. I didn't want that life for my son and I didn't have to raise him that way. But I think what, what emerged for me, even till today, as I reflect about that, the marriage and the ending of the marriage and the healing of that relationship, is that I entered in my marriage with a lot of insecurity. Um, so, and, and that's interesting, right? Like growing up, um, how, how I had all of this belief about myself, about who I am and who I'm not. And even entering that relationship, I still... I still had a very abusive and unloving relationship with myself. And at the same time, I was longing for a loving and healthy relationship with another being without even knowing how to give that to my own self. And, and in that sense, that relationship was mirroring my relationship, the relationship I had with myself in, 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 and, and that was, I think to, to today, that's my biggest learning. What, what ended it was to be able to face myself and to come out of denial and to realize no matter how much I can love someone and no matter how much someone can love me, when two beings are, when that love is actually self-destructive, it's at least for me, the decision was, I believe it's healthier for me. I, I think, and, and the reflection was again, that, that, that book, I keep coming back to that book of Shahamidukan really. And like when you leave without knowing that what you're going to find is better than what you're leaving. Because when you're leaving a marriage at some point, there's this whole question of maybe life is just like this. Maybe couples, that's what marriage is supposed to be. And growing up in West Africa, you hear a lot of stories around how marriage is suffering and marriage is pain and marriage is just something that you have to, to endure until some point and then it's going to get better. And I remember one day I was so heartbroken and I never opened up to my parents about anything that happened in my relationship. And then one day I remember I wrote to my dad a letter and I remember I sat for my mom for the first time and I broke down in tears in front of her and she looked at me and she said, and for that I'm very grateful that I had parents and especially parents in our context because in our context, parents can be the one actually trying to force people to stay in that relationship for a lot of reasons. Um, but my parents, they liberated me one more time and they reminded me to trust my heart and to follow my inspiration. And I remember my mom telling me, honey, marriage is made to be fulfilling and harmonious. And yes, there are moments that are difficult and moments where we compromise. But she told me at the end of the day, people do those compromises and they stand in relationship with one another because what they share is bigger than what separates them. And at the end of the day, if you die today, all of this will disappear. And so I think contemplating death and asking myself, am I really living the life that is in alignment with myself? And the answer was no. And the fact that I wasn't living the life that was in alignment with myself and I wasn't being loved in the way that I needed to be loved created an environment where I was just deperishing. I got all kinds of different illnesses. And again, um, all of that was just sometimes sickness was a tool for me to escape my own reality. 
and to try to tell people, okay, come save me when I'm the one who can save myself all along. I would try to have people come and pick me up from those, from those situations instead of taking responsibility for my life and taking accountability for that which I know is true in my heart. Um, so no, my, my marriage was actually my greatest lesson and my greatest teacher. It, it taught me that I cannot give what I don't have and I cannot receive also what I don't nourish and cultivate and nurture in my life first. For me to be in a loving and healthy relationship, I need to be loving and healthy with myself first. And um, when I'm insecure and I want somebody else to validate those insecurities, um, well, it's just the opposite. Uh, most of the time, power dynamics are born from those insecurities, and we and the power dynamics are fe insecurities feed power dynamics, right? So even with the people we love, when they feel insecure, um, and we try to reassure them, there can be a tendency at some point to use those insecurities against them, and that's destructive love. And I think um, no matter the intentions and the good intentions we had with one another in entering that relationship we didn't have the tools to lovingly uh, be there for one another. So self-knowledge is at the core of, of this podcast. Um, so there's a word in my familial tongue, Kronko, and the word is long, and it means self-knowledge. Self is not fixed. Discovery, it's a process. It's not a noun. It's an action. So self-discovery, I think, is um, a lifelong process. And the practice of self is just to discover yourself in different circumstances of life. Um, of course, I mentioned, you know, meditation and journaling. Um, as ways to ask myself to do introspection, to examine some thoughts, to examine some stories. I've also been through coaching myself to uh, have my views challenged from people that I respected and admired, but also I was paying them to pay attention to me. And then I've also done a lot of, you know, ceremonies and retreats and all sorts of other things and experimenting a lot, let's say, because I was always curious to find what's, what's the next and this constant pursuit of self-development, it's like you have an image somewhere that you're trying to reach and no, no way. It was one of my illusions and one of my ego-fueled illusions that I had to, you know, really put down. Mm. And whether that comes from, you know, uh, going out with people that you don't necessarily like just to test yourself, can you be open? Can you be present? Can you actually connect to another person? Or I started, for example, Sistema training. Sistema is a martial art coming from Russia, which is very much based on the uh, psychology and physiology and biomechanics of the body. You know, so mm -hmm. it's not like repetitive, a hundred moves the same time. No, it's like the Russians have was saying, how can I put you to the ground with the least amount of effort possible? And if mm -hmm. that means spitting in your face to, <laughs> to put your guard down, they will do it. And you need to be prepared with that. So the trainer, the, the instructor that I have, which is a mentor of mine, he puts me into these situations where I'm facing my own fears, like jumping from one, uh, you know, ledge to another. And I'm like, there, about to jump about, about, but I can't jump, you know, because I'm afraid. 
So that's already a practice of self. Because what are you afraid of? Of falling? Yeah, I'm bony. I'm 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 thin, and I and my bones hurt. You know, like I, I really don't want that. And that's overcoming a, a limitation and discovering something new about yourself. I'm curious to know what practices you do to know yourself, to connect with yourself. Therapy, by the way, is a great way to start that like self knowledge journey, like with somebody helping you. Um, but I feel like I'm, I'm at this point now where I kind of have my own tool belt. And so one thing that I'm constantly doing with myself is this thing called a one word check-in. So throughout my day, and I do this at the beginning, I do it if I notice any big shift in my mood, I do it at the end of my day. I did it before our call. I just did it, you know, on my own just now. Um, and so I'll just like take a seat. I'll close my eyes and I'll just take a deep breath. And then I just ask myself, how am I feeling in one word right now? And I just allow that one word to come into my mind. And depending on the quality of the word, whether it's like a feel good word or maybe like a more stressed out word or negative word, I try to then make like an action plan forward. Like if it's a really good word, like right now I'm feeling inspired. And so I'm thinking like, why am I feeling inspired? It's because I'm talking to you about you know, a story and this beautiful, you know, term of self-knowledge. And I really allow myself to like sit in that moment of inspiration and like really soak it in and fully feel it. And vice versa, before this call, I was feeling anxious. And so I was sort of doing some affirmations, like everything's going to go well, you know, Yelp is amazing. You will say the right things. It's going to be okay. And that helps me before we started to instead of coming from a place of anxiety, just come from a place of curiosity instead. So these one word check-ins can help you create opportunities for celebration and like a chance to step in and help yourself. And, you know, through self-knowledge, give yourself what you need because we can always give ourselves what we need and tell ourselves what we need. It's just a matter of building that awareness of when we need to step yeah. in. For me, what I've learned through therapy and just growth in general is that you are constantly evolving. We mm -hmm. hear that all the time. Changes, changes, constant, whatever. What they don't tell you is that you have to be at peace with your past self and your present self mm -hmm. and who you hope to be. Mm -hmm. And that is a challenge. Mm -hmm. Like that's for me, that's been my number one <laughs> thing. It's like, there's so many parts of me that misses old parts of me, yeah. but likes the new parts of me, but also doesn't, is not yet comfortable with the mm. new me. And it's really, they don't tell you how hard it's going to be, you know, and you think that you're going to get to a place where you're like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm doing great. I'm whatever. I have a good job, blah, blah, yeah. blah. But it's like making peace with your multiple uh, selves mm -hmm. is a very complex experience and it's, it's ongoing. It's a life, yeah. And it's a lifelong journey. Yeah. Lucky for me, I'm able to make therapy work and do this kind of work where I can connect the dots and, you know, thanks to having good friends or meeting people like you or whoever who can have these conversations is super helpful. In addition to, to going to therapy, because it's such a beautiful space, it's like being able to take care of your body you are a beautiful spirit. Your body is a vessel. You have to take care of your body. You only have one, right? So, so take your body for a walk. Hydrate your body. Drink a lot of water throughout the day, right? Meditate with your body. Like really love it unconditionally. And, and it is a journey. I'm not saying this is easy, but it is a journey that, that you have to be willing to commit. We need to be able to process our feelings. We need to be able to communicate, express our feelings, learn to release, learn to let go, and, and really, really be intentional about taking care of, of our bodies and, and love our bodies. And it, it doesn't necessarily have to be difficult.
the practice of talking to someone else is what I believe is the thing that I have to work on. Mm. Like, because that leads to relationship building that leads to like being happier in life, you know? And I didn't realize that, like, it's it's always been a solo act for me. Mm. Um, And I'm not realizing like, Hey, having friends is okay. Like you can trust people, you know? But again, the trust issues come from like, from that trauma that I had as a young kid. And, and it's taken me a while and it's very much something that I have to practice still. But um, the process is first thinking and then talking about it. Asking yourself questions is key and reflecting on those mm-hmm. questions. Um, like my father always says, there are no bad emotions. It's no, just no. a matter of awareness around those emotions and asking yourself, are these feelings I want to nurture? And if I don't want to nurture, what do I want to nurture? Right. Right. Or, or, or also I would add, what are these feelings trying to send? Uh, what message are they trying to send me? Yeah. What is their purpose? Because emotions always come with a purpose. They need to be allowed, you know, mm-hmm. not blocked, not repressed, not ignore. But if you are really doing quality introspection, I would say it's always an emotion that if you are able to notice, they have, a, they, they are, they light you, they guide yeah. you, they show you your limits. Mm-hmm. That's what's, that's what I found was most important in my case. For anyone, you know, who's who has doubts about how or why or whatever, I've heard this before and it didn't mean anything for me, but now I, I really does. If I can do it, anyone can do it. And it's always like that. There is no end in sight. There's no ideal. There's no fear of missing out. There's no comparison. There's no, I need to be like this person by 35, whatever. No, 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 no. You have a whole lifetime for that. But uh, you can start with a small step, whatever it is. And it, it's beautiful because I'm, I'm in relaxed. I am happy. I am, I have my doubts. I have my fears. I have my worries, you know, finances and family and all of that. But it's easier to deal with them when you are come from a place of how can I help? How can I be in flow with myself? How can I be show up to my best and help people? And it makes everything else easier. It's, it's just beautiful switching from that survival mode towards creation, what I call it. Writing my book was so important to me because as I'm sharing with you in this short time and, and I'm just loving it, I, I can't tell you how great this feels to be sharing with you, but as I'm sharing a little bit of my life in this short time, it really was important to me that all those things that I had gone through, I've met someone who's gone through something similar somehow. So my stories aren't unique. My The names may have changed, the little different details, but everyone has been through something similar. And I thought the reason I'm able to help so many people is because I can relate because I've been there, because I understand. I really believe that when you operate from your values, that you're able to create and live into this life that you really are meant to be in. Mm -hmm. And so for me, one of my values is joy. And so I have to ask myself, what do you enjoy doing? 
that whole question of when we go there, is what we're going to find better than what we're leaving behind us? I think that interrogation, we can never know. And that's the whole sense of courage. We take choices at a given point in time, not knowing what's happening in the future, not knowing what's waiting for us. We have faith that things might turn out in a certain way. And at the same time, they might or they might not. But there is the unknown and uncertainty. And I think that sentence of fear walking has all its sense when we can still be afraid and we can still be unknown. We can still stand in the uncertainty and the not knowing of many things and still make that unique act at a given point and have faith in ourselves and in the process and choose that unique act and that faith over the certainty and the comfort of what we already know. For all of us who have ever been like disposed of like that or who've ever felt like devalued, I think that trauma sits with you for a long time, right? And I think it'll come up like um, in, in, or you get triggered in different moments of your life. Um, but to me, like, I just have to see that, um, you know, as like we have said, one door closes, another door opens, right? And like, there's no, for I me, mean, there's no, reason to to um, waste any tears over it or or spend any energy into that right i think like yes i should take time to like process it and, and sit with that that feelings and 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 lean in on it but um i should also then use that to kind of motivate me as well right and 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 really like in any struggle um, we just have to continue to rise above it and push through Healing doesn't take, it doesn't take place even on your timetable, um, much less anybody else's. And there will be times when you will feel, I'm good. And then out of nowhere, something will just take you right back to that space where you're not as well comported as you usually present yourself. And sometimes you start wondering, am I not being honest with other people? Am I wearing this mask? Um, and, and you should tell yourself, yes, I'm wearing a mask. We all wear the mask. And we make the decision as to when the mask becomes too heavy. And then we'll choose to take it off. Um, so I say still choose yourself. What is one thing that you can do on a regular basis that connects you to yourself and connects you and make, enables you to better understand yourself? I think that is so, so important. And it doesn't have to be therapy. Therapy is just one way. Therapy is one of many ways that I do it. Journaling is another way. This podcast is another way. <laughs> Listening to people and then reflecting on my experience is one way. But I think it's important to have some kind of practice. Practice is key. Practice that connects you to you. And I want to wish you all the best on your journey, on your self-discovery, your self-knowledge journey. And know that it's 
lifelong. The only time you stop learning about yourself, stop knowing yourself, is when we cease to be. And to that point, you are never done knowing yourself. So, know yourself. When I was especially diagnosed with fibromyalgia, which... Thank you for listening to this episode of Kume Turning Point Diaries. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating and review, and don't forget to share with your loved ones. Also, in order to get notified of any of our latest episodes, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. You can also follow us on our socials at Turning Point Diaries. DRC Jaye is the technical director of this episode. This episode was produced by Kume House and the AMBC. My name is Yonka Kamara. I'm the creator and host of this podcast. Kume, until next time. Theme music by Exile Dynamics featuring Mark Box. <laughs>